Hey listeners, today's episode deals with topics of miscarriage, death of a child, and gun violence. We wanted to notify our listeners who may experience trauma related to these topics ahead of the episode and to let you know that resources are listed in the description and on our website. Thanks for listening. In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Matt, do you want to tell the listeners what this last week has been like for you? Yeah, so I don't know if you've been following along with my journey into my body completely falling apart and breaking down into, (laughs) like, dust. <laughs> but um first I had an illness that was stress related that lasted a while and that was terrible. Then my partner got chicken pox, adult chicken pox, which we thought he had it when he was younger. Surprise, he has not. Anyone who has an adult chicken pox, get it now. <laughs> get oh, it honestly. now and get it out of your system. And then immediately following that, I had this terrible migraine disorder that came on and then I just Barely finished recovering from whatever that was. And yesterday, literally yesterday, I had a half hour left of work and just everything broke down. (laughs) It was like, you you don't watch Frasier or have you watched Frasier? Um, I watched Frasier when I was a kid when it was out. The reason I bring it up is because there's a classic episode where before the opening credits, there's this sequence that happens. I don't think there's hardly any dialogue. And I think it's Niles trying to get, like, ready for a date. But, like, something lights on fire. He's playing classical music. And the whole time he's trying yes. to get ready for a date, something lights on fire. The yes, smoke I, alarm I've goes seen out. And then he passes out. Because every yes. time he sees blood, he passes out. <laughs> something yes. like that. That's how it felt yesterday. <laughs> it was around 2.30. Work was insane. I was going to get off at 3. And then I just started to notice my, comp- my laptop wasn't really working. And I was like, that's kind of weird. And then I couldn't access the internet on my phone. And I was like, okay, something's wrong with the Wi-Fi. And I'm working from home. So I'm like, oh, great, of course. So I'm like trying to diagnose the Wi-Fi, this, that, and the other thing. I'm unplugging this. I'm unplugging that. The dogs are going crazy because I'm like underneath things and trying to reach things where they think they're getting toys from. It's just a whole fiasco. And then I finally figure out from the Cox website, that's our internet. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, COX. The COX uh, website. It's like an outage in my area. And it's not expected to be fixed until like 9 p.m. that night. (laughs) That happened to us the other day. Like we had a whole day where Miles and I literally just couldn't work because Mm -hmm. our internet was down from like the early morning until like 10 o'clock at night that night. Mm -hmm. And also it (gasps) coincided with the SIM card and my phone died. So I literally couldn't access any internet whatsoever. I couldn't watch TV like because everything, all TV is on the internet (laughs) All the game, like it, I could, I had to read a book, Matt. I had to read. Oh no! A book. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually fine. I love reading, but it was just like it was one of those things where you're like, oh wow, I like really can't do anything without the internet. I I swear, we I had the same realization later that day. But yeah, during this time, I was like, okay, well, I can't work. It's already been about twenty minutes of me diagnosing the problem. I'm off in ten minutes. It is what it is. So I texted mm-hmm. my manager. I'm like, let me go downstairs and use the restroom. Walking down the steps, roll my ankle, pop on the ground. Pop goes the weasel. (laughs) Pop goes the weasel. I'm on the ground. (laughs) You fell to the ground? Yeah, because I was walking down the steps and I um, was at the landing on our steps where like it turns and then becomes more steps, thankfully. So I didn't fall down the steps. I just kind of like fell to my knees on that little landing. And I was like, 
great. So I like crawled back up the steps, put my foot up on ice, and I was like, okay, we'll see how bad this is. Uh, fun fact, seven years ago, I, I broke my foot in much the same way. So I was freaking out that it was that. After a few days and multiple doctor calls and emergency, or, you know, whatever, I sprained my ankle. I'm in an air cast. <laughs> I can't walk without the aid of something. <laughs> and I'm just over it. I'm over this. <laughs> Matt, when you broke your foot seven years ago, was that when you moved to Santa Barbara? It was, no, that was when I got hit by the car. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) This was about a year and a half before that I had broken my foot doing drunken karaoke. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You broke your foot doing karaoke? I remember being in the Were you? (laughs) Were you doing some really intricate footwork as part of your choreography during this karaoke session? Have I never told you the story? No. I must have early in our friendship because it was so, like, recent at that point. But it's a long time ago. There's a bridged version. I was on vacation with some friends. I was at a bar. There was karaoke happening. I was very drunk. And I wasn't even performing or singing or whatever. I was literally leaving the restroom, and I heard someone start doing Love Shack, which, of course, got me excited. (laughs) (laughs) So I ran out onto the floor, and I was, like, excited. I was like, oh, my God, I got to see who's singing the song. And there was just, like, a tiny—it wasn't a a dance floor. It was, like, you step down one step. (laughs) Mm, into an area that people dance onto, basically. Yes, yes. I stepped down that one step, and I rolled my ankle, and I was like, ow! Kept dancing the rest of the night, sang another song, (laughs) like nothing. And I just thought, oh, that's going to be sore in the morning. Like, you know, when you roll your foot. The next morning, I woke up, my foot was purple, fractured a bone in my foot, and I remember at the uh, urgent care, the doctor was like, oh, how'd this happen? Were you you playing like a sport or something, or like whatever? (laughs) LOL. (laughs) You're like, well, the way I do karaoke is kind of a competitive sport. Uh, I was like, kind of. Um, I had a karaoke bar. <laughs> and I remember the nurse was like, shut up. That is great. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's the that's that's where I'm at. So wow. that's where life's got me right now. <laughs> God. Well, I don't I have not had a very eventful week, unlike you, but <sighs> I did send you a couple of links to I am I'm a hundred percent certain Luca Magnata on Reddit. I'm so glad you want to talk about this this episode because if you didn't bring it up, I was gonna force you to. <laughs> it's it's creepy. Like I get physically ill feeling when I read these posts that I'm convinced are from him. I'm convinced too. I showed Davey yesterday, he's convinced. And I have to give you serious credit because you brought this up to me off the air, of course, I feel like over a month ago. Yeah, a long time ago. And you were like, I feel like Luca Magnata might be on the internet on Reddit, from jail. Yeah. Because I've I've heard that that could be a thing before, and here is some evidence. And you sent me a link, and I was like, oh, yeah, maybe. These ones you sent me recently, this is him. This is him. Oh, 100%. Nobody <laughs> else would talk about him like that but himself. No. And then you got me down the rabbit hole, like I told you. I don't know if you went into some of the links within the links you sent me. <laughs> oh, no, I didn't. But there's a whole um, Reddit thread or i'm so bad at reddit that i don't know even what you call these subreddit i would call it a thread it's like all about uh like a consolidated post that people have replied to that updates and it has all of the evidence that luca magnata (gasps) is on the internet and it has links to each like bullet point and we were and it's within one of the links you sent us the sec so you can find it really easy and there was so much evidence and so many things i was like oh my god he's you you really got us (laughs) 
Uh, well, I feel very proud of my detective work that I identified that it was him. I mean, you're essentially a detective. And we've talked about how I'm a music psychic before, so maybe I should be lending my mm. uh, skills to the uh, detective force. <laughs> Jerry's still out on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I think I'm as much of a psychic as Sylvia Brown was. Oh, 100%. So Matt, do you have any recommendations for us this week? I kind of do. I wanted to tell you that your recommendation of Wild Wild Country... The is wild. previous episode? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's wild. I had mentioned we started it that same week, ironically. And when I told Davey that, we were like, okay, this is a sign we need to finish it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so we, we haven't finished it. We're in episode five of six, so we're almost there. But oh my gosh, it is taking me on a total ride. Right? Yeah, it's, and I it's had a, known a so, little bit. It's such a strange story. So much. I had thought I'd known a lot more about it because of the My Favorite Murder episode and because of some small um, things I've seen on it since then. Yeah. I had no clue of a lot of the stuff that led up to the big <laughs> the big ticket items. Yes. And I was so surprised and delighted to see how many people who were directly... Involved? Yeah, involved with the Rajneeshi and all of them, and especially Sheila. So involved in the documentary, so... It's great, and I, I have to agree that it is definitely making me alter my perception of the story as a whole mm-hmm. in a totally unexpected way. So the jury's still yeah. out until I see the last episode, but <laughs> yeah, very, very good. Have to yeah. double down on that recommendation for sure. My only recommendation this week is not um, a television or podcast thing. It's actually a book. The case that I'm going to talk about just like briefly mentions – uh, women on welfare and there's a it's an academic book called flat broke with children it's by a sociologist named sharon hayes who actually i studied with at usc oh and it's a really phenomenal book it's uh definitely like really accessible it's not like super dense theory kind of stuff and and she spent years like studying and interviewing women on welfare to like understand how welfare was operating, particularly in the era of welfare reform after Reagan and Bush. And so it's it's a very, very fascinating story that I think if you don't really understand how welfare works, it provides a really good picture into that. And it also is just kind of, I don't want to say like disturbing, but kind of disturbing in that part of her work was interviewing all of these women and getting their life stories and sort of like talking with them about ending up on welfare and and how they navigated it and all of that. And almost without exception, all of these women were like, I had like a perfectly normal life. And then like I had one too many medical bills or my husband lost his job for a month and a half and we ended up on welfare and it was like impossible to get out of like po- extreme poverty after that. And so it, it was, it's just one of those books that I think highlights how we are all so much closer to poverty than we are to being a billionaire um, mm-hmm. or a millionaire. Uh, so if you would like to learn more about the welfare system, um, again, the book is called Flat Broke with Children by Sharon Hayes, H-A-Y-S. Perfect. That's awesome. So also, we have been mentioning that we would love to collaborate with other podcasts, and we recently got in touch with the Weekly Creep podcast, which is a true crime and paranormal podcast. Uh, the host names are Adam and Dulce. And Adam has, I, I think it's an Irish accent. 
Represent. Anyway, <laughs> I, they it's a really fun podcast. Highly recommend you listen to it. We are going to share their promo at the end of our episode, so stay tuned for that. Yeah, definitely right up our alley. I mean, true crime and paranormal, most of the podcasts I listen to are <laughs> in that kind of world. <laughs> you know what's so funny is typically paranormal doesn't like grip me the way true crime does, just because a lot of the times I'm like, I don't think, I don't believe in this. Um, but then there's some of those stories where it's like uh, a specific house was haunted by people and everybody reported the same things. And I find those kinds of things really interesting. I stayed at a hotel actually in, I want to say Riverside. And if I think real hard, I can probably remember the name of it, but it was supposedly a, a haunted hotel and it's Ooh. a very interesting, very strange hotel. And there are YouTube videos of, like, this is the room where all of the hauntings happen. And so I definitely, like, went around looking for ghosts when I was staying there. Didn't I, find anything. I love that kind of stuff, honestly. Yeah. I, I won't say I believe in all of it, but I'm always drawn to that. I'm definitely the type of person who, if something is paranormal and there's a <laughs> something about it on TV or movie and it doesn't look complete trash i'm 100 percent gonna watch it <laughs> <laughs> there's um a, a couple episodes of sinisterhood where there are some haunted hotels in dallas where they are and or maybe not quite near where they are in dallas but there is some nearby like super spooky hotels and they were like all right if we get to 500 uh reviews on apple Podcasts by this date we are gonna put ourselves up in this hotel and we'll do an episode about the hauntings of this hotel from the hotel and like report back on what we experience i would totally do something like that with you that would be fun oh my god are you kidding that would be amazing amazing <laughs> where i'm trying to think i feel like there's some super haunted stuff that i've like super haunted hotels that i've heard of but i can't think of any kind of like nearby in california hmm. maybe like hearst castle i don't know if that has any haunting uh, stories maybe but. you know davy uh has an app on his phone i don't know if i do i, I don't think i downloaded it but when we were back in Jersey recently, recently, a couple of years ago, maybe for a wedding, one of the guests at the wedding and us, we were, we connected and she had an app and I'm going to try to find out what it is. I'll, I'll text around for next episode, but there's an app that kind of like lists them to ge like geotagging. Oh, them. okay. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, user submitted stuff. So it's growing and she found like a lot of stuff. Oh my God. That's so cool. It's like, I'll have to look that up and see if I can recommend it or not. It's like Grinder, but with ghosts. <laughs> I would say more like Yelp, but uh, Grinder. It's like Grinder in the fact that it's uh, geographically uh, organized. Yeah, proximate to you. It's helping you find near the nearest ghost to you. Well, oh, that's fun. Also, did you know there's a um, there's a ghost tour of Santa Barbara? I've heard that before. I wonder if it's a real ghost tour, if it's the the Santa Barbara version of it, which is you know starfish and lighthouses and <laughs> kelp listen there are some good stories about lighthouses oh i'm obsessed with lighthouses but you know santa barbara always has a way of like making overselling beach overselling and under delivering <laughs> <laughs> oh god okay you said it all right let's get into it i'm ready okay so this is <laughs> rip from the headlines <laughs> <laughs> that's matt i'm n yes and i'm doing the episode today it is season two episode six the episode title is misconception which boring title no real... i was surprised they didn't take the opportunity to do like misconception like miscongeniality kind of thing oh i just got it 
Oh. I just got... Okay, wait. I thought so, too, but I just got the uh, the, the theme here. Yes. It's I'm about thinking... conception. Yeah, I'm thinking, oh, it's a misconception. Duh. Okay, Duh. this episode deals with pregnancy and, and that kind of thing. I get yeah. it. Okay. Uh, still not great. No. I'm a little embarrassed, though, that it took me that to get it. <laughs> also, are you going to give me credit? Oh, uh, immediately. Immediately. Don't okay, worry. great. Um, I will say as a disclaimer before I start this, I have two guest stars I'm calling out. Oh. I wouldn't say they're necessarily huge actors as far as notoriety or, you know, acclaim, quote unquote. However, yeah. they're going to be guest stars for you specifically. Oh. Because great. of what they were in. Oh. <gasps> charmed? Were any of them charmed? No, but you're in the right wheelhouse. Don't guess anymore, though, because I want you to be surprised. <laughs> I got way too excited about that. No, but you're, you're right, right on track. Okay, great. All right, so we're starting out this episode tapped into the spiritual realm because <laughs> your psychic predictions have come true. Thank you. <laughs> okay, this is ridiculous to me. We're in episode six of season two. We did not count episode one, and you have already satisfied your first prediction of four beat cop openings within the season. Okay, here's when I when I got my credit for that, when I was like, I've accomplished it, check. I have already decided I'm going to double it. I'm going to say in the season there will be eight beat cop openings. Ooh, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm putting this in here so I remember when you changed it, just so we okay. can reference it. <laughs> I have a feeling you're going to get eight, but still. I'm sure. I'm sure I will. Very well done. And I have to say, writers... We have to do better. Okay? Do better. This is give, out of give five Give me a trash episodes. can discovery. Give me a dog <laughs> discovery. I know. I can't believe out of the five episodes that we were grading, four of them had beat cop openings, and one of them was, like, in your opinion, adjacent to a beat cop opening. Yes, because it was very, very quick. Here we are. We're at the beginning, as I said, beat cop opening. Great. We have two beat cops driving around, complaining about their families, and... What else is new? <laughs> what else is new? And That's then... the only conversation they know how to have on this show. Unless they're hungry. Yes. <laughs> so the beat cops are driving around on the scene, and we have two female employees leaving and closing up what I thought at the point at that point was a department store for the night. It did look like one. Yeah, I thought they were closing the window, but later we're going to find out it's a law firm. But hey, you know... Maybe it's a law firm that, like, offers reasonably priced fashions. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. One of the employees offers to share a cab with the other one who's very pregnant, but she says they're in different areas. She takes the subway all the time, so don't worry. What can go wrong? A walk what could in the go wrong? night. Pregnant hey. woman. So as... And we're not just talking, like, it was, like, 8 o'clock. It literally... There was nobody on the street. It literally looked like maybe 2 a.m. Yeah, the cop car was probably the only one driving around. Yes. So they cut back to the cops, and as one of them is complaining about his horrible family, we get an anonymous 911 call leading them down an alley to where they find the pregnant woman we just saw earlier, only now she's barely coherent and she's lying like face down on the pavement. The ambulance arrives and puts her in, and Logan and Soretta are on the scene, where Logan makes a comment about how self-defense classes are a bad idea... I don't even... It was very strange. Yeah, he's like, oh, I bet... I, they say her area, and she's like, oh, I bet she was in one of those self-defense classes, trailing everyone to try to protect themselves. Sheesh. I'm like, um, I get it that yeah. they're saying, like, if you can run, then run. Right. But I think but let's not to uh, let's not mock somebody for taking a self-defense class. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then we get the opening credits, and I really needed a coffee. So I thought, <laughs> it's been a minute since I've really been out of the house, pandemic, you know? <laughs> 
So I booked a flight to Hawaii and I harvested and roasted a small batch of Kona beans. And as I arrived back home and brewed myself a cup, we were just winding down this beautiful opening sequence. Can I just tell you, <laughs> Hawaiian coffee, there, there's like a, a hazel, a macadamia nut coffee from mm. Hawaii that is unbelievably good. That macadamia nuts and Hawaiian coffee are like mm. peanut butter and jelly. Yes. Oh, I love, I was trying to think of where I was going to go for this coffee before I actually booked a flight, of course. And <laughs> I, I thought was, you were going to go down to like, I don't know, Panama or something. I know, I was thinking of some of the like traditional coffee growing regions. I was like, oh my God, you know what I really want? A cup of Kona Hawaii. coffee. Yeah. Uh, I'm obsessed with coffee, <laughs> listeners, if you don't already know. L- worked with in a, in a coffee shop for most of my life. Oh, now I want coffee. <laughs> Anyway, we're back with the opening sequence ending, and we're in the hospital now, and there's a doctor telling the detectives that the the victim is alive, so she's a survivor, and she's actually recovering pretty well for a change. The unfortunate detail is that the survivor is about five to six months pregnant, and they're monitoring the baby. The baby's, you know, not in great shape. No. And he talks about this in a really casual way. And at first I was thinking it's really insensitive, but then I was thinking about it and he's talking to detectives only. And I imagine that if you're in this kind of field where you're like a doctor, you probably have to deliver a lot of bad news. Probably, yeah. And I guess you have to sort of, to be a good doctor, I guess you have to disconnect a little bit. But, I guess. <laughs> you know, like when talking to cops, I guess if you took all that on all the time, it would probably be, be not be great for you, your own health. And maybe... Yes. Not great for you going forward. I'm going to give him a pass for now. And then we have the detectives going in to see the survivor. Her name is Amy. And she says that she was grabbed from behind and thrown to the ground and had her purse stolen. And then she was kicked in the stomach afterwards. So she's worried about the health of her baby. And I don't know if you recognize Amy, but she is a one of the guest stars I was talking about. The actress's name is Molly Price. This was her first credited role. And later on, she'll be known mostly for being on Third Watch. Do you remember that show? I don't. Okay, I remember it. I didn't really watch it. But anyway, the reason I bring her up is because she was also in a few episodes of Sex in the City as what? Carrie's friend, Susan Sharon. <gasps> Susan Sharon. I think oh my God. She's featured in like three or four episodes over the course of the series. It looked like in two different seasons. <laughs> oh my God. I a hundred percent know who she is. That's amazing. Okay. I good. didn't even recognize her. Yeah. First credited role. She has an episode where she decides she's going to start designing handbags and she invites everybody to this like, come by my handbags party and they get there and there are all these like unbelievably disgusting, ugly things that are like, <laughs> and I think one of the jokes is like, um, we need to take her glue gun away <laughs> because this is a mistake. Well, that doesn't very much different from her wardrobe in this episode. So <laughs> no, uh, she's, she recounts this terrible thing that happened to her and Logan assumes she's married because she's pregnant, of course. And she says she's not, but that the baby's father works at the local cab company. And I just thought, have you ever, do you remember the TV show Taxi? I, my, my parents watched it, but it was a little before my time. Yeah. It was before my time too, but I was obsessed with Taxi on like Nick at Night and TV Land growing up. Oh, okay. And I had such a crush on Tony Danza in that show. Oh, yeah. Tony Danza. He was pretty cute. It was one of my earliest memories of having a crush on like a male famous person. Uh Uh-huh. Anywho, I had to bring that up. So they go to visit Christopher at his job at the cab company. And he says that Christopher is her boyfriend. And he says that he's 
um, never liked her boss and how he treats her and that maybe after all of this, now they can move back to Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And I thought, um, I'm sorry. Your pregnant girlfriend was assaulted. The baby not, not might not make it. And your response is gripes about her job and her boss. And then mm-hmm. I got I to gotta get back to work. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't call this guy a great catch. No. No. So now they're suspicious about that the motive of what happened to her was more about her being having a baby. They talk to a maintenance worker who says that they were a typical couple, but they press him a little bit further. And he's like, oh, you know, once to... Because the past seven months ago, she had a cast on her arm, and she said she fell. So that was, doesn't look great for them, but I'm minding my business. They go to the this what I thought was a mechanic's garage, but I think it's the taxi company when he's not there. Yes. And his, like, sort of gruff boss, who is taking notes from Danny DeVito in Taxi, but is female, <laughs> uh, she reports that he was out of the area at the time of the attack. So Can we... Her hair. <laughs> was that hair? Barely. It barely qualified. It was like... It was a mullet. It was kind of a mullet, a long mullet, it, too. It, it was like, it was almost like the actress from the last episode with the silky chicken hair in the front, and then a mullet, and then you like glued a mullet to the back of it. In the hospital, Amy has a huge stuffed animal the size of her body now, and <laughs> they just straight up ask her in the hospital room while she's like recovering, uh, does your boyfriend hit you? Does he abuse you? Was he responsible for your broken arm six years? Like, strange tactic. Yeah. But she's kind of unfazed by it. Um, she says, no, I just fell. I just fell. So they bring him in for questioning because they don't really believe her. Logan is hoping that he'll implicate himself. Soretta bursts in in the middle of this questioning where he's denying everything and just announces that Amy lost the baby. Like nothing. Yeah. Like pass the pepper. And this is exactly what I was talking about earlier that I, that I was giving them a pass for and no longer giving a pass for because the loss of a life is tragic no matter what. The loss of a of a life that you're growing inside of you is really tragic, regardless of the framework around this being a possible criminal investigation of some sort. Right. That's not the kind of news I think should be delivered. Just like opening the door. Poking your head in the door. Yeah. Right. This is how Christopher learns the news. And he's obviously very upset. Robinette tells them that if they're looking to charge in the state of New York, the baby would have needed to be at least 24 weeks old. And when they go to confirm what the age of the baby was, what the age of the fetus was, they find out from the doctor that it was probably about 25 weeks old. But she can't really say for sure. But they're going to run with it. So back at the hospital, they talk to Amy again, who keeps changing her story. (laughs) Now she admits that it was actually her boss's baby, and Chris didn't know, and that they should really go question the boss. So they go to talk to the boss, and he's cool and collected and says that Amy wasn't his type. He's married to an educated woman. Uh, rude. Very rude. Rude. So his alibi places him at the country club that he stays at when work when he works late. And I thought, is that a thing that country clubs do? I mean, I guess if he... <laughs> I guess. Maybe? Like I if it know... has like a hotel-ish type thing attached. I didn't know country clubs... I, I mean, I have never and will never be in the <laughs> cash bracket to be able to afford to go to a country club. And I also don't have the interest bracket to ever want to go to one. Oh, for sure. However, yeah. I did not think that... I don't know what they are, I guess, because I didn't think they had uh, overnight rooms, but... No, I didn't does. think so either. But maybe, like, I mean, New York? I don't know. Who knows? So they, they go to check out his alibi to see what the country club is all about. And when they get there, they're talking to the bartender who knows knows him and says that he was there uh, at 1 a.m. that night, like he said. And he mm-hmm. recognizes Amy... He recognizes him. So the detectives then go talk to one of Amy's coworkers who confirms that, yes, 
uh, she was pregnant with his baby and he knew about it and he told her to have an abortion. So they go back to Alcott, who then, of course, denies it all. But our girl Amy is no fool. She did not just fall off the turnip truck. She's got a recording in her drawer of him because she was his secretary, so he would, like, dictate notes to her. And in it, very strangely, in the middle of, like, his normal law notes, he's like, oh, yeah, baby, you're hot. Like, all this weird it's so, stuff. He's literally like, um, please submit the paperwork to the law firm of Esther and Esther. Oh, yeah, I love it when you get out of the shower. <laughs> it's so, it's just unbelievably bad writing. Totally bad, totally unnatural. And the way he's talking when he says things about her is as though he's responding to things that she's saying and she's clearly not on the tape. It's very strange. No, Doesn't make any sense. It's super weird. But hey, she's got she's got receipts, so good for her. Now, when confronted with the fact that he is on recording, he tries to weasel out of it again and he says, "Okay, fine. Fine. I did I did sleep with her, um, but I didn't I didn't want a baby. I didn't want the scandal and Regardless of that, I was not willing to commit a crime for it. I just told her, like, you know, I can't have a baby. Right. He says you should probably talk to the boyfriend, though, because he knows that she's been cheating, and he would probably be mad. So they go to Amy again, who, of course, admits it again, saying she straight up lied before, that he did know it was not his baby. And now we discover that they were using the baby as a meal ticket, quote-unquote, to bribe Alcott mm. together. Yep. Yikes. Not great. Not a good look. Not great. This changes the whole, like, oh, poor them, you know, stop stop pushing her about being having a broken arm. I'm like, oh, wait. Can I just say one thing, too? If you were going to use your, like, baby to get money out of this guy, why wouldn't you just be like, well, tell your wife? You know, like, why not? Like, I'm not, I'm, to be clear, I'm not advocating for getting pregnant and then blackmailing people by telling them it's their baby. Why not? But (laughs) wouldn't you go that route over, like, staging an assault? Oh, my, on your, uh, yeah, 100%. That's pretty nefarious. Yeah. (laughs) The defendant, who is Alcott, is charged with murder two and assault one. Um, And on trial, Amy says that her boss told her she needed to get an abortion or she would be fired and that she threatened to go public. And then Christopher testifies that he was offered like a price to him to keep quiet. And I think it was like 10K or 20K, but all Alcott was willing to give was 2000 And when he asked for more, he called them white trash and told them like hit the road, basically. <laughs> mm-hmm. And on the stand, when a doctor for the prosecution is cross-examined, we learned that the margin of error for determining fetal age is about two weeks, which means yeah. that they cannot conclusively determine that the baby was under 24 weeks by their own with their own expert testimony right and so murder the charge of murder is now off the table this pisses off the plaintiffs enough to hire this bigwig hotshot well-known attorney and uh they're gonna sue alcott for like 10 million dollars something crazy stone and robinette are like okay now we gotta go see what this is all about so they visit this very very 90s office with a literal jungle of plants it was like again the rainforest cafe (laughs) oh god the rainforest cafe and he reveals in this office that the couple sought him out um they actually sought him out the day after they were released from the hospital so he's not the one they should be talking to and as he's doing this he's eating what looks to me i rewound a few times i thought i guess that's a salad it just looks like a plate full of like colorful fabric (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like that's probably what he's eating <laughs> it's piled a nice, so high dirty diet of uh linen 
it's either topped with what are sliced radishes or like a sort of pinkish red fabric <laughs> ribbon. This is like that episode where they were like, oh, the person on the stretcher. And we were like, is there somebody on that stretcher? It was that like laundry. a fire extinguisher. <laughs> yeah. So they're like, okay, let's go back. And this is suspicious. And they go over all of the evidence and all of the dates begin to fall into place. And the recording that Amy has of her boss proves that it was recorded after their very first encounter and that based on the date and the time, it makes it impossible for the baby to have been past 24 weeks old and impossible for it to actually be Alcott's based on that encounter. Bum, bum, bum. So Chris, the cab driver, is also discovered to have been a recently disbarred lawyer. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wouldn't that come up in a simple background check? I mean, I guess they hadn't really looked into his background at at very much at this point. Outrageous. I mean, I find out more classified information on people when I Google them. Yeah. Catfish finds more interesting information about people, okay? (laughs) And they just use Google. Anyway, the next scene I just have to talk about because we're going to talk about hair. Oh, great. I can't wait. It has... Okay, so the scene is when Mrs. Alcott, who we haven't seen at all this whole episode, because Mm -hmm. let's not forget the man who slept with Amy is married, and it's her attorney, and they're meeting with both Amy and Christopher, and Amy's hair throughout this episode, it starts like wild because she was, you know, assaulted, and then it gets more and more... What Sister I would... wifey. <gasps> exactly. Okay, I'm so glad you said that. I said I wrote down it's very like big love. I yes! live in a commune. I'm a sister wife, and I let my kids play with a wooden stick and a metal hoop. <laughs> yes, a thousand percent. It is very, very much a big love style of haircut. Yes, it is Chloe Seventy's big love hair. Yep. And then her attorney's hair, by stark contrast, is literally just blonde cotton candy. Oh, I don't remember her. Oh, no, I remember it now. Yeah, <laughs> yes. that's accurate. It's the kind of hair that when light is shown from behind it, the whole hair illuminates because it's yes. so thinly spread out. <laughs> yeah. So in this scene, we get a little, it's, it's a ruse. It's a ruse. And they're being recorded. On the other side of the recording behind the scenes is the DA's office listening in. So mm-hmm. what they do is... The attorney for Mrs. Walcott is discussing having Amy and Christopher drop their civil suit of $10 million and they will pay them $1 million to do so. And they're like, why would we do this? And they're like, listen, if you do this, we're going to proceed with divorce proceedings on Mr. Alcott and she's going to get everything. And if you don't, because Chris then is like, uh, blah, 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 and he spits out some like legal jargon showing all of a sudden that he's competent. And the attorney says, listen, you're right with whatever you just said, but I'm going to tie up his assets for years. So you're not going to get anything for a really long time, if at all. So take the million right away. And they are like, okay, fine, we'll do it. And since they took the bait, you know, Robinette and Stone are like, okay, these people are just opportunists and they're sick because they literally orchestrated the killing of, that's pretty, and they knew that it was their biological child, that it had nothing to do with Alcott. So it's pretty, it's pretty wild. And they find out that Chris's alibi is BS. And now they're going to try for attempted murder since murder's off the table. The new house duo do not take kindly to this. And Amy (laughs) shows her hand in the DA's office and she's like, Chris knows how to read the murder statute. And I know when I got pregnant. So back off. Yeah. She basically is like, 
we knew exactly what we were doing so that it didn't meet the definition of a crime. Mm -hmm. So now we're seeing a very different side of them. And on the stand back in the courtroom, Amy is trying to appear sympathetic and tearful and all this stuff. And she's saying she could never have a baby now she's found out. And she's demonizing Alcott, saying he deserves everything he gets. And Christopher on the stand looks like a fool for getting disbarred and has a little temper. And the stone also gets... Amy to admit that Chris was disbarred in their home state for encouraging a witness to lie in the stands. And he's like, yep. I wonder if he's doing it again. <laughs> yeah. And the jury totally like reacts and sides with the prosecution. And they reach the verdict of guilty of second degree attempted murder for both Amy and Chris. And while Robinette argues afterwards that they won on a technicality, Stone says he's not losing any sleep at night. And that is the end of the episode. Okay, so great job, first of all. <laughs> Thank you. Second of all, are you ready for the case? I am. I, I mean, this could be really anything. It, okay, so it's definitely not one that you'll recognize, but it's, mm-hmm. it's actually a really important case as far as case law goes and like how it might impact future similar scenarios. Okay. So this is the story, not the story of, but this is... This story involves a woman named Maria Trinidad Flores and a man named Robert Davis. And kind of like the last true crime that I did, everything about them that I could find begins at the moment of, like, this crime. Like, I could not find anything about their background or at at all. Like, it was just just reporting on the case. Okay. Okay. So basically, you now know everything I know about Maria Flores and Robert Davis <laughs> up to the point of this crime. Okay. Another quick disclaimer. Um, I just realized the content warning that we recorded at the beginning doesn't include uh, domestic abuse. And one of the uh, little moments that I'm going to talk about also involves domestic abuse. So um, content warning for that. Okay. Okay. So in the in San Diego... In the early afternoon of March 1st, 1991, Maria Flores, who at the time was a 21-year-old mother, went to a check cashing store on Imperial Avenue to cash her welfare check. With her at the time was her 20-month-old son, Hector, so, you know, just under two years, Mm -hmm. who she was holding in her arms. She cashed the check and went to leave the store, and as she did... Um, A man named Robert Davis, who at the time was 20 years old and unemployed, he approached her, pulled a gun from the waistband of his pants, and demanded that she hand over her purse. She refused to hand it over, and Davis kind of grabbed for her purse and, in the process, shot her in the chest at close range. Oh my god. Mia. Maria fell to the ground dropping her 20-month-old son, Hector. He There was no indication that he was injured in this story, but um, many of the articles that I read said he was dropped on the ground. I was like, well, could you also say if he's okay? Because we didn't get that information. Witnesses claim that as she fell to the ground, Maria they heard Maria whimpering dinero while rolling over in a vain attempt to keep hold of her money, which... Davis yanked out of her hands and fled the scene. Many of the articles have kind of the same line, which is that Davis fled the scene while Hector stood over his mother screaming as she was basically bleeding out. Oh my god, okay. 
She was transported to UC San Diego Medical Center, where she underwent surgery to save her life from the gunshot wound to the chest. And it was then that the doctors realized that she was between 23 and 25 weeks pregnant at the time. The surgeons consulted with obstetricians who believed that the fetus, because of its extreme prematurity, probably would not survive outside of the womb. And so they were like, well, we can't perform an emergency Mm C-section. And although they sutured some small holes in her uterine wall to prevent further bleeding, unfortunately, due to extensive blood loss and low blood pressure, the fetus was born stillborn the next day. So pretty quickly, also this is part of the story that nobody seems to have reported on, how they capture or arrest Robert Davis, but uh, he was arrested and brought up on um, murder charges for the attempted murder of this fetus. So the trial was actually really controversial and really heavily documented because both pro-choice and anti-abortion activists were seeing this case as um, sort of involving the often debated moral argument of like, when does life legally begin? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because again, as we said, he's being brought up on the charges of a, of the murder of the fetus because Maria ended up being just fine. So- The prosecution's case rested on medical experts who testified that the statistical likelihood of the fetus surviving outside of the womb at the time of the incident were between 7 and 47%. So not not very good odds, unless you're at the really, really high range of that, but even, even so... The prosecution was saying that this this fetus had less than 50% chance at best of surviving outside the womb, um, whereas the defense's medical experts contested that at that age, there was only a 2 to 3% chance the fetus would have lived. Um, and, and they also talk about how at this period in the pregnancy, it's very common for spontaneous abortion to occur, or spo- sorry, spo- spontaneous miscarriage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's kind of the, the high-risk period of pregnancy. Despite these pretty widely varying numbers from 2% to 47%, none of the medical experts could testify that the survival of the fetus was probable or likely to occur, right? They were all like, well, there was a chance, but it wasn't a very good chance. Yeah. So this case really rested on multiple previous case laws involving the killing of a fetus. Um, And I'm going to just mention a couple of those. In 1969, a man named Robert Keeler and um, his wife, Teresa Keeler, they were married for 16 years, but she had filed for divorce and they were in the process of separation and divorce. They weren't living together. They weren't seeing each other, any of that. Unbeknownst to Robert, Teresa had become pregnant by another man named Ernest Vogt. And on February 23rd, Teresa Keeler was driving their two, uh, hers and Robert's two daughters to his home for his visitation period when he approached her in his car in the opposite direction and blocked the road with his car. He walked up to her car and said, I heard you're pregnant, and yanks her out of the car and like looks down at her stomach and says, you sure are, and then says, this is graphic, I'm going to stomp it out of you. <gasps> He pushed her against the car and shoved his knee into her abdomen and proceeded to beat her until she lost consciousness. She regained consciousness and drove herself to the hospital. Upon arrival to the hospital, doctors found that the child's skull had been fractured in utero, causing cerebral hemorrhaging, and it was delivered stillborn. At the time, the fetus of Robert and Teresa Keeler was between 34 and 36 weeks old. And so in this case... 
of Keeler versus the Supreme Court, the court ruled that the killing of a fetus was not murder because a fetus was not a human being with under under the meaning of the statute. And this was the statute that had been written in 1850 when human being was was like understood by the law to mean a a person who was born alive. So this was kind of one of the big cases in 1969 that uh, was kind of like looking at this law that had been written back in 1850. So he was acquitted of all charges. I think he might have gotten some uh, penalty for like assault and things like that, but he was, he was acquitted of the murder of the fetus. Uh, Okay. In 1976. So this is another case that uh, they were drawing upon in the Maria Flores case was the case of the people versus Carl Andrew Smith. This one, Listen, okay. In 19... (laughs) So, Carl believed that his wife had become pregnant by cheating on him with another man. And based on what I could read, he also believed it to be a man of color, which in 1976, you know, not that attitudes are wonderful today, but certainly interracial relationships in 1976 were much less favorably looked upon than they are today. Sure, it probably wasn't even much more before that, before when it was illegal. Yeah, I'm. I was trying to, off the top of my head, think of when uh, Loving versus Virginia was that legalized interracial yeah. marriage, but I can't. I that might have been like seventy two. So uh, it was around. Maybe it was before. Let me look then. It up. Have the, <laughs> oh, oh wow, nineteen sixty seven. Sixty seven. Okay, so like nine years afterwards. Yeah. So she, he believes her to be pregnant by another man, a man of color, and so he drunkenly comes home. And he and his wife, Jolene, exchange some words, and he brutally assaults her and causes her to miscarry her then 13-week-old fetus. Um, The trial court in this case held that only a viable fetus could become an object of murder, so he also was acquitted of the murder of this fetus because uh, because of how the law defined, like, personhood at that Mm. point. Hmm. By the way, this article that I, or this um, story, the story of Carl Andrew Smith and his wife, Jolene, uh, was told in a Western State University Law Review journal that I read. And it basically was like, in this case of a husband beating his wife until she miscarried, in this case of uh, a husband beating his wife until she miscarried, like it was just case after case after case. And all of them were so horrifying. And all of them are horrific, but particularly the story of Carl and Jolene Smith actually made me, like, ill with how cruel he was to her during the beating. So I hope there's a special place in hell for that guy. Seriously. So all of these cases really rested on this premise of the fetus being um, viable for independent human life. And these were the cases that they were, that the prosecution was drawing upon in the prosecution of Robert Davis and the assault of Maria Flores. Um, because pre- prior to the case of Maria Flores and Robert Davis, California courts had only interpreted the law to apply to a viable fetus, so something that w- could live independently. However, in the case of Maria Flores and Robert Davis, the trial judge, kind of despite the defense's objections, stated to the jury, and this is a, a verbatim quote, a fetus is viable when it has achieved the capability for independent existence. That is, when it is possible for it to survive the trauma of birth, although with artificial medical aid. So where all of the previous cases up to the one of Maria Flores and Robert Davis had rested on probability of survival, in this case, the judge's instructions to the jury shifted it to possibility of survival, which, 
as as I said at the beginning of of telling this story, both the defense and the prosecution had those medical experts who testified to the viability of the fetus, and even the ones who had said, you know, the chances were two percent. That's still technically a possibility, right. and so this kind of reframing of the instructions to the jury by the the trial um, judge permitted them to interpret that this child of Maria Flores's had a possibility of survival. And so it permitted them to co- convict Davis of murder. Um, and that is exactly what they did. So the jury convicted him of the murder of a fetus during the course of a robbery. He was also at the same time convicted of assault with a firearm and robbery. Because the prosecution had not sought the death penalty in this case, he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, plus five years for the use of a firearm. And this was really the the case of Robert Davis versus um, or the people versus Robert Davis was a really landmark ruling that actually is referenced in tons and tons of case law today. I actually, when I was researching for this case, reached out to a lawyer friend of mine and was like, how do I look up? whether a case has impacted like future cases. And he kind of helped me do a little legal research. And essentially the the case of Davis or the people versus Davis had created case law that a person could be convicted of the murder of a fetus within the same time period under which it could be legally aborted. So that was like huge because part of the right to abortion law had sort of been like, well, up until this period, it's not really human life, da-da-da-da-da. But now Robert Davis had been convicted of killing a fetus and uh, been convicted of murder for the death of a fetus that occurred within a window of time where an abortion would have still been legal. Mm-hmm. So what this meant was that state prosecutors now had the right to charge a defendant with murder for causing a woman, a pregnant woman, to miscarry even if the child was incapable of surviving outside of the womb. And as quoted by the, or as stated by the LA Times, this case gave California the toughest fetal murder law in the nation because at this point, a robber could be sentenced to murder if, through the course of their actions, a pregnant woman miscarried, even if the robber was unaware that the woman was pregnant at the time. Wow. Um, Yeah. So it also meant that the state had the right to charge defendants with multiple murders, uh, which is punishable with the death penalty, if they kill a pregnant woman whose fetus could not have survived outside of the womb. Oh, okay. So so the, the Davis case had some really far-reaching implications for future cases, and legal experts were really concerned about the kind of amount of like knots that this could create in the legal system, because now there were all these questions like, what if Maria, in the case of Maria Flores and Robert Davis, what if she had been en route to have an abortion when she was shot and her baby died? Like, what would then he still be charged with murder? Like, it it caused all of these gray area questions to occur in relation to the rights of life for a fetus and, you know, the mother and all of that kind of stuff. So this, of course, this ruling of convicting Davis was met with a claim from anti-abortion activists because they saw it as confirmation that a non-viable fetus was being seen as a legal person in the eyes of the government. And um, Anne 
Kint, K-I-N-D-T, who at the time was executive director of the Right to Life League of Southern California, stated, This is a victory of sorts because it is giving the identity of humanity to an unborn child. Whereas Abby Liebman, who was executive director of California Women's Law Center, said that the California Supreme Court's ruling had moved the law in, quote, a very troubling direction by paving the way for regulating the behavior of a pregnant woman, because a lot of pro-choice or abortions rights activists were really concerned that it could allow the state to unduly punish a pregnant woman if she engaged in any, any behavior that might injure her fetus, right? Because yeah. um, I was one of the... That. Yeah, one of the dissenting judges in the Davis case, um, his name was Justice Stanley Mosk, and he wrote, quote, an unarmed shoplifter who accidentally knocks down a woman who is seven weeks pregnant and causes her to miscarry could face death or life in prison without the possibility of parole, even if he didn't know she was pregnant. And even if at this point, um, up to seven weeks up to 20% of all pregnancies spontaneously abort. So proving that somebody's actions caused this miscarriage would be exceptionally difficult. But Justice Stanley Mosk was really concerned, like, you know, somebody just doing a, a robbery could suddenly face life in prison. Or if a mother was found to have, like, engaged in some action and it caused her to miscarry, could she then be tried for the murder of her own fetus? Like, yeah. it's, it caused a lot of questions and problems. After the trial, Davis's legal team appealed the decision, um, saying, you know, he shouldn't have been convicted of murder in this case. They basically argued that the statute had been written to apply to the probability of the fetus, fetus's survival, not the possibility. And they were drawing upon case law all the way back from Roe v. Wade, which stated that human life does not come into existence until a fetus is viable and able to live outside of the mother's womb, whether with or without artificial age. Um, aid. And that was typically at the 28-week or seven-month mark. Mm -hmm. So they were like, hey, this ruling of Davis was really against all previous case law. And so in a pretty complex ruling, a six-to-one uh, majority reversed the 22-year-old precedent and removed viability from the de definition of murder in the state's fetal homicide law. So they upheld the reasoning for Davis's conviction, but um, as we'll find in a moment, they actually overturn his conviction, which is super weird. Yeah. Um, because essentially what they're saying is, okay, we agree that it should not be about viability, but that was not the way the law was written and understood at the time that Davis was arrested and prosecuted. So that's why he was released. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So basically, they were saying like, okay, yes, we understand the law now this way. Um, we're removing viability from the definition of murder of a fetus, but because the way that because that's not how the law worked at the time that Robert Davis was arrested and tried, we're going to overturn his conviction. That's lame. Yeah, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> my opinion too. So in the opinion written by Justice Charles, I'm going to say Freilich, F R O E L I C H. It surely makes little difference to the woman with child in utero, hoping and expecting to carry the child to full term, whether the child is killed at 20 weeks or 25 weeks of existence. Similarly, the criminal culpability of the perpetrator of the killing seems equal, regardless of the age of the fetus. We believe it is therefore entirely within the power of the state to impose upon the killing of any fetus the same penalty as is prescribed for murder of a human being. So that's really, really strong 
language. Yeah. <laughs> Which, it, I, this case really, I had a lot of surprising moments as I was reading through the, this case. It just kind of surprised me I mean, what I'm, a lot of people said. I'm having a lot of feelings, so yes. I get it. <laughs> so they said that this finding could not be applied retroactively, so therefore they overturned Davis's murder conviction. And they said that the Court of Appeal in the trial court prejudicially erred when it instructed the jury contrary to then-existing law. So the inst- remember the judge's instructions of mm-hmm. uh, possibility, not probability. Yeah. They said it was incorrect for him to do that at that time. So at this point, Davis only had to serve 11 years for the other charges of which he was convicted, which was the uh, you know armed uh, robbery yeah. and assault charges, I believe. So in this six to one opinion, the dissenting opinion was written by Justice Stanley Mosk, and he or he cited the hypothetical case of an 18 year old with no criminal record who enters a store to shoplift and runs out, accidentally knocking down a woman who's seven weeks pregnant, later miscarries. He says before today's decision, such a youth would have been guilty of at most second degree burglary. After today's decision, this teenager could be found guilty of first-degree murder. And he pointed out that this interpretation of the law really challenges our understanding of murder, which, so not only did this case, like, really, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, kind of, like, upend how we had understand, how we had understood fetal viability and rights to life kind of stuff, but it also, like, really challenged how the law understood the definition of murder period. Yeah. Because Mosk was saying it murder requires the intent and forethought to kill, but in many of these cases, the quote-unquote killer might not even know that the woman was pregnant. And so the Western State University Law Review article I read said, under the new definition of fetus, first-degree felony murder will extend to any death in the commission of a listed felony of a non-viable and invisible fetus the actor neither knows nor has reason to know exists. So it was like, wait a minute, how are we going to charge people with murder of a fetus when these are the conditions we usually apply to murder cases, which is, you know, knowledge and intention to act and commit this murder? But despite that, the fact remains that California is now the only state in which an individual can be charged with the murder of killing a fetus, which cannot survive outside the womb. All the other states still rest on the viability of the fetus in order to determine whether uh, a judgment of murder can be applied. So in California only, murder can be applied automatically. Correct. Yes. And then in other states, you have to determine whether the fetus was viable, a.k.a. whether it would have been able to survive outside the womb with or without the aid of medical. Okay, okay. Exactly. Yeah. So we have in California the harshest fetal murder law in the country. Interesting. Which, I mean, that fact alone surprised me because I feel like we, you know, we tend, whenever we look at like harsh sentencing, it's typically not California that's like top of that list. So (laughs) I was kind of surprised by that. Usually at the bottom. (laughs) Yes. And again, I am not a lawyer. And so if somebody out there is hearing this and is like, actually, there was this other case that kind of da, 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 please feel free to email me. I really tried hard to look at any other cases that had overturned this precedent. By all accounts that I could find, that is still how California law applies the definition of murder to a fetus. Couple other developments. Following this ruling of the Supreme Court of California, the state charged two other men with fetal murder in two cases where the fetus was not yet viable. In one, 
The defendant pled guilty to a lesser charge and was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. And in the other, the state ultimately dropped the case as they were unable to prove that the fetus was alive at the time that the mother was shot. So what Justice Mosk was really concerned about was how much kind of far-reaching authority this gave the state to apply murder charges. And those two stories are kind of cited as like pretty quickly the state decided to start applying that to these cases. Mm-hmm. It might not also surprise you to know that this informed a lot of other future cases. Uh, one of the ones that is mentioned is that this case law informed the case of the state versus Scott Peterson oh, in the murder wow. of Lacey Peterson. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't get into the details of exactly how they applied it in that case, but it was kind of like one of those high-profile cases this law has applied to. Mm. Okay, maybe more on that in a future episode. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There was one other future case that uh, I wanted to mention. In 2002, there was a ruling that stated that a killer must know that a victim was pregnant in order to be guilty of killing the fetus. But in 2004, President Bush signed legislation that stated if a fetus is killed in the commission of a federal offense, the law does not require that the killer have knowledge of the pregnancy in order to be charged with multiple murders. So it's kind of like the 2002 ruling was like a little bit more toward the like knowledge and intent of the perpetrator. But then the 2004 Bush ruling kind of flipped again, (laughs) overturned that basically. Sort of. In this story, in the case of Robert Davis and Maria Trinidad Flores, uh, Robert Davis was paroled in 1997, and the last article that I could find about him was that he was living in Denver at the time of his parole, and that's literally where his story ends. And I was unable to find a single article about Maria Flores' life prior to or after this incident, Mm. other than she survived. Yeah. So that is the story of the assault of Maria Flores by Robert Davis and how the death of her child, her unborn child, had a huge impact on California law. Wow. So. That's a lot. Yeah. Interesting story. Yeah. Well done, all of that research. Thank you. Got a lot of feelings. I mean, I guess two things, two thoughts. I grew up very pro-life. Okay. Like, very, very much. I would, like, I saw a documentary when I was, like, I don't want, I don't know how old, in grammar school. Yeah. Really late at night, they would play, docu- like, this hour-long documentary. It was called, like, A Moment of Truth. It was very <laughs> 80s, and it was about, it was an anti-abortion propaganda-type video. And they yes. would show, on, like, cable TV, public access TV, rather, they would show bloody... Aborted children. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I was traumatized. Traumatized. Yeah. And I saw oh, yeah. this, and I thought, who would do this kind of thing? And it totally affected me. I now, as a 30-something-year-old man, I don't feel this way anymore. I have a different opinion, of course, but it's strange with this ruling because on one hand, I want to say, like, of course, if, if someone is bringing a baby into this world willingly and is choosing to, to go through with this pregnancy and then their child-to-be is killed while in the womb and the pregnancy is terminated without their consent, I think that that should be considered, in my opinion, a serious crime, either murder yeah. or, or something else that needs, it, it can't for me just be, oh, well, it's a viability issue. Because when you're pregnant in, and you want that baby in your mind, you're, you're now altering your entire trajectory of your life. Totally. You know what I mean? It's not just about having a baby anymore. It's like, what kind of career am I going to have? How am I going to support this baby? We need, do we have room for this baby? 
do we both or or am I going to do it alone? It's just so much affects your life. And then for that to end, it is yeah. not just the death of a child or the loss of a possible child. It is a incredible period of mourning for what your life for your yeah. entire it's the loss of life as you as you expected it to be probably yeah. your whole life and yeah. it's I, I there needs to be repercussions for that but on the yes. other hand <laughs> for those who want to who get pregnant and then they choose to terminate the pregnancy and i forgive me if that's not the proper terminology anymore but that's as i, think I that's know of it still correct Okay, so I think. <laughs> I think that that person has that choice, and I, I don't think there should be any repercussion for that. I think it's your body, it's your choice, and I think it's dicey for me, this this legislation. It's, a, it's so it's complicated. It's a really, yeah, because like when you look at it from, like, imagine, like, if you put yourself in Maria Flores's position, and then put yourself in Robert Davis's position, right? Like, back to what Justice Mosk said, like, to, or I'm um, sorry, not Justice Mosk, Freilich, I think, saying, like, well, if somebody is assaulted and it causes them to miscarry, it doesn't matter to the mom if she's 20 weeks or 25 weeks. Like, it's still the loss of her child. Right. And so I agree with you. I think repercussions are in order. And also, I, I it makes me nervous when we start do, like enacting laws that are like, we're going to charge you with murder, even though that was neither your intent nor your awareness of what was happening. Like, that feels really far overreaching of the state's power to me. So both of those things make me pretty nervous. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I don't know. It's a, it's one of those things that's like, you know, how how can the law ever draw a line in the sand and and apply it to the many many variations of human life of like different circumstances it's just i don't know it's so messy to try to um, like apply a black and white law to life when it's totally gray yeah yeah and what a terrible time in the in the parents lives to go through and then have to yeah. then go through it with the possibility of a trial looming over their heads if possibly yes. you know this was like that situation the judge said earlier like the supermarket thing you right, know like exactly oh my god okay i have two things <laughs> okay i just wanted to to just take a second and talk about how this episode portrayed the loss of a child yeah whether during pregnancy or not i have very a lot of family members who have had miscarriages who have you know, survived through miscarriages, and I've had a lot of friends. Yeah. And as someone growing up hearing about a miscarriage or the loss of a child, I remember it's terrible, sad, and I, I would be like, oh my God, that's so sad. I would feel sad and move on. Yeah. And I think understanding it now as a grown-up, <laughs> whatever you want to say <laughs> I am, what I've learned from from those in my life who are close to me who've who've gone through this is that when someone's pregnant and they announce it, all anyone wants to do is talk to that person about their, their pregnancy. Yes. And then if they announce it at all, which is a whole other thing, when they lose the baby, they are completely ignored. Yeah. and Like nobody talks about it. Nobody talks about it. Nobody knows. How, first of all, the, the, the parents, because in, in my opinion, when you have a pregnancy— and you, it's a pregnancy that you are happy about and you're choosing to take to term. Yeah. You are a parent right then yeah. and there. And so the loss of the child to me doesn't take away that parenthood. 
you still have the right to call yourself a mother or a father if you if you yeah. choose to. And so the person is incredibly shamed into not saying anything when they lose yeah. the baby because they don't want to make other people uncomfortable. Right. And then when they do, they get no responses. They get no answers. Nobody reaches out. What kind of experience is that, is that now for the grieving, the bereaving parents? Yeah. You know, they're completely isolated. They go from everyone <laughs> checking in on them every day and this whole dream of what they want to being completely isolated overnight. And then they have to deal with it alone. And the, the society will tell you, you should deal with this alone. What do you want to do? Bum everybody out? And right. I just think that that needs to be said out loud um, because I didn't see it myself until I had to see it. And yeah. I just think I felt important for me to say that. Yeah, totally. I think for any of those kinds of traumas in life where there's like a culture of silence around it, it makes it, so I think, so much more painful and people apply shame to it and things like that or or blame and things like that. And so I agree. I think it's definitely one of those life events that is is really common, but that nobody talks about. And so for anybody who experiences it, it makes it feel like a very isolating experience, mm-hmm. um, which is not really not necessarily how everybody would choose to process through grief is through isolation. Right? Yeah. So yeah, I think yeah. that it's, it's important to just remember for everyone out there, when you're unsure of what to say to someone in your life that's going through a really hard time and it's because you're uncomfortable about it or you don't want to trigger them, you don't want to, you just don't know what to say. I think an underlying thing to remember is that your friends and loved ones want to hear from you. And if it's just that you don't know what to say, I think that's better than silence. I think yes. it's better to reach out and say, I, I could not possibly know what to say to you. I love you. How can I support you? Exactly. Is better than saying, I did better than saying months down the line, I didn't know what to say. I'm sorry. You know, I think that's just why I wanted to bring that up. And for those people out there who are affected by the trauma of Loss losing of a child, a child yeah. or infertility, I wanted to call out a organization that a friend of mine has told me about. They're called Uniquely Knitted. Um, you can find them on Instagram at uniquely underscore knitted. The website, I think, is just uniquelyknitted.com. They're a nonprofit, and they help all parents and those struggling with the effects of infertility to sort of build resilience in the face of trauma. They do things like workshops. They send out you can send out a um, like a care package through them that's very personal, and it can be sent to bereaving parents or those dealing with infertility issues or the loss of a child. And it's really beautiful. They have a lot of really great resources that you can look up. And I just wanted to call them out as a great organization that I think is doing really good work. And I think they help normalize conversations like this. Yeah. And I think they help those out there who are struggling realize that there's a whole community. They're really, it it could be very isolating for women and men dealing with this, particularly women. It it could be very isolating, but there is a whole community of people out there for you who really, really will understand you. So I just wanted to call them out. That's awesome. Thank you. One thing, this will be a lighten it up a little bit. Okay. We were talking about airplanes in a previous episode being struck by lightning. Yes. Okay. I have a friend who's a pilot. So I, re- oh. I reached out and they actually texted me back while we were recording. <laughs> oh my God, that's so funny. <laughs> okay, so uh, our friends Andy and Alex, they both are either pilots or have gone to flight school. Shout out to them. P.S. I want to uh, give a lot of credit to pilots. That's one of the professions that I think gives me the most, like 
I think I would fall to pieces if somebody asked me to fly an airplane. The idea of shepherding hundreds of people through the sky terrifies me. I I hate being on a plane, but being responsible for the plane, no. I love that line. Shepherding (laughs) shepherding people people through the sky. sky. (laughs) Love that. Yeah, I I did reach out to Andy and I wanted to find out if if this was a common thing or if it's just a myth. So they said, it is not uncommon... But you're also not going to get hit every time you pass near a storm. I'd say it's probably more rare than people think, but also happens more often than people think, LOL. <laughs> and then they, I asked if there's anything um, built into planes to protect against this. And they said that, for sure, static wicks to dissipate static electricity, wires are all insulated, and they even designed planes to, quote-unquote, carry the charge to exit the plane at a safe location. Oh yeah, like a like a a lightning rod that channels it out of the plane, basically. Yeah. So fun fact. Thank you, Andy, for uh for very for cool. helping us out. <laughs> also, I just had to share. I want to share one silly little story about airplanes, which is I used to be really really afraid of flying. Um, I did it so infrequently, and for a period of time, actually looked into becoming a flight attendant just Ooh. to conquer my fear of flying like immersion therapy but it turns out because i am six foot four that airlines will not hire me because i am too tall oh wow take that to yeah. the supreme court i should <laughs> which explains why i fucking hate being on airplanes because i'm always smashed like a little thing in a sardine can uh, oh, i'm so lucky to be a shorty Ugh, honestly <laughs> um how would you rate the episode I'm going to give watchability for the episode, honestly, I'm going to give it a D. Okay. You know, they took a a situation of a woman being assaulted and losing her baby, and then- And turned it into, like, a corruption scheme thing. Yeah, and I, you know, I get it. It's a story, but, I mean, it it doesn't paint that very well. So I'm going to give it a D, and I also thought it was very confusing and that the evidence was, like, they should have known that from day one. And for the crime, I don't know, like a C? It's, like, kind of- C minus, C minus. Yeah, I, I'm i going to echo your ratings. I didn't think this was a great episode. It wasn't very enjoyable to watch Mm-mm. and didn't really deal very sensitively with a lot of the topics in the in the episode based on the crime. So I would also give it a C minus-ish. Yeah. Do better, Law & Order. Give us a good episode. Come on. Well, we are about to do our sign-off, but after our sign-off, don't forget to stick around for the promo of Weekly Creep. Yes. If you would like to help us grow, the very best thing you can do is to rate and review our podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen to our episodes. Yeah, and most people try a podcast because a friend recommends it. I mean, that's how I've basically heard of most of my podcasts. (laughs) So if you're enjoying our show, please tell a friend. We love connecting with all of you, so please feel free to send us an email at rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Ripped Headlines. You can also find our website at rippedheadlinespod.com. There's a lot of information on there. You can find links to everything. We've got a lot of fun stuff coming up. We've got a newsletter we're launching, a merch store. We were actually just talking about that this week. And uh, keep tuned for uh, finding out about our Patreon. Um, There are also a lot of other great true crime podcasts out there, like Weekly Creep, that you're about to hear their promo in a moment. So if you would like to see us collaborate with any of them, please put us in touch or let us know. And thank you so much for listening to Rip from the Headlines, where you'll get the facts and some fiction. We will see you next week. And until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye. Bye. Welcome, Welcome, creeps. creeps. I'm Adam. And I'm Dulce from Weekly Creep. And we like to tell stories about true crime, the supernatural, aliens, and 
everything in between. Each week, we surprise each other with a new topic and our listeners get to learn about it right along with us. We like to have a laid back atmosphere, so it's more like you're just hanging out with friends. Weird friends who like talking about true crime, the supernatural and everything in between. Some people like to listen to us and maybe you will too. We release new episodes every Friday and a bonus titillating tales of true terror on the first of every month. Tune in this Friday for a brand new episode.